You're listening to The Martial Brain, the podcast that explores the intersection between the martial arts, science, critical thinking, skepticism, and that wacky organ that floats inside our skulls in a pool of cerebral spinal fluid, making life unpredictably inspiring, infuriating, and sometimes just batshit crazy. I'm Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. The Forgotten War. The United States, the Philippines, war, colonialism, and the martial arts. Part 21. As part of telling you the greater story of the Philippine-American War, I've told you a good number of stories about the African-American Buffalo Soldiers. They fought valiantly under inhuman conditions in Cuba and in the Philippines. But if you're like me, you're curious about what happened to them for the rest of the war, and indeed after the war. Well, here goes. Most of their stories so far took place in and around their role in the Cuban theater of the Spanish-American War. 7,000 Buffalo soldiers later saw action in the Philippines. In future episodes, I'll tell you about the armed struggle against Muslims that's coming up in the southern Philippines and went on up to the eve of World War I. But for now, let's talk about the Buffalo Soldiers. The Buffalo Soldiers of the 24th Infantry also fought against the Muslims in 1905, and again in 1911. But the stories of these six regiments extend beyond the war in the Philippines. One fascinating story is that of Captain Charles Young, who was the hero of dozens of battles in the Philippines. He was only the third African-American to graduate from West Point, and the very first black officer to be given the authority to command troops. You see, up until then, the only black officers had been doctors or chaplains. In May of 1903, Captain Young was assigned a group of Buffalo soldiers from the 9th and 10th Cavalries and ordered to protect and patrol Sequoia National Park in California. Now, you'd think that since the first national park was created at Yellowstone in 1872, that there would have simultaneously been formed a bureaucracy and security force to protect and administer national parks. Nope. For almost half a century, among others, bandits, poachers, farmers, and herders blithely ignored the boundaries of national parks and exploited these preserved areas for their own purposes. It wouldn't be until 1916 that the U.S. National Park Service would be created. In the meantime, poachers and trespassers became such a problem that the government tried using the military to handle it. Buffalo soldiers had been used in this role before, but this was the first time that an African-American man would actually head up the project and command the troops. Captain Young and his men built the first roads, buildings, and other infrastructure in the park. They also fought forest fires and patrolled to protect against poachers, vandals, and trespassers, engaging in more than one firefight in this process. Mere days after Young and his troops were assigned to this task, our old friend President Theodore Roosevelt made a formal visit to nearby San Francisco. Strangely and ironically, he specifically selected Captain Young and some of his troopers to act as his honor guard, accompanying and guarding his carriage as it toured the city streets. Now, considering that Teddy had thrown African-American soldiers in general under the bus in his book, The Rough Riders, 
which I quoted for you in an earlier episode, it's curious that he would select members of two of the very units of black soldiers that had saved his ass twice in Cuba. What was his reason? Well, President Roosevelt never chose to share that with us. Perhaps he remembered how well they had protected him and his few remaining men at the battles of Las Guasimas and Kettle Hill. And, perhaps being spooked by the assassination of President McKinley a mere year and a half earlier, he sought out the best damn bodyguards he knew of in the region. Or maybe he felt guilty for shitting on the Buffalo soldiers in his book and was making a gesture. We will probably never know. But three years later, the story of President Roosevelt and that of the Buffalo soldiers intersected yet again. And not in a good way. This part of the story turns around an infamous event known as the Brownsville Affair, also known as the Brownsville Raid. You see, in May of 1906, the War Department, in its infinite wisdom, detailed Buffalo soldiers from the 25th Infantry to be assigned to two forts in Texas near the city of Brownsville, a municipality famous at the time for its racism. Now, when some place in 1906 Texas is described as famous for its racism, you should sit up and take notice. This reputation was so well-deserved that the Army actually issued a heads-up to the War Department about this, and the white commander of the Texas National Guard warned that, quote, citizens of Brownsville entertain race hatred to an extreme degree, unquote. When they got to the Brownsville area, the soldiers of the 25th were greeted by, you guessed it, angry crowds. Prominent signs on most business establishments forbade the entry of anyone who was not white. Relations between the Buffalo soldiers and the locals began at bad and rapidly grew to worse. This was at the height of the era of lynching, and one of the typical sparks for one of these horrendous group acts was a rumor that a black man or boy had disrespected or even attacked a white woman. On one occasion in Brownsville during this time, Private James Newton of the 25th was pistol-whipped by a white local official when James failed to step off the sidewalk quickly enough as a white woman approached on it. Almost inevitably, in August of 1906, a rumor arose in Brownsville that a soldier of the 25th had attacked a white woman on the night of the 12th. The officers in command declared an early curfew the next night to keep the men safely inside their barracks. That next night, under mysterious circumstances, a white bartender in town was shot and killed, and a police lieutenant was shot and wounded. The locals immediately accused the Buffalo soldiers of these attacks. Now, the white officers in command confirmed and insisted that each and every Buffalo soldier had been in their barracks that night and couldn't possibly be responsible. This assertion fell on deaf ears, and the locals, led by the mayor of Brownsville, demanded satisfaction. Now, these private citizens provided what they called evidence, which consisted of spent cartridges from U.S. Army rifles, presented as evidence with no chain of custody or context. Other evidence that these cartridges had been planted in order to incriminate the soldiers of the 25th came forth, but fell on deaf ears. The furor quickly grew to white-hot intensity and spread nationwide. Pressure was placed on the soldiers of the 25th to, quote, name names, unquote, to identify the alleged attackers. To a man, they insisted they knew nothing of the shootings. The Texas Rangers were called in to investigate, 
and Ranger Captain Bill McDonald tried hard to tie the attacks to 12 of the soldiers. All the alleged details of this sordid affair were headline material in newspapers across the country. No indictments, however, resulted from the investigation. This only further enraged the locals, who continued to raise hell about the event. Soon, a large fraction of the American people were demanding justice. President Roosevelt, a politician in every sense of the word, felt which way the wind was blowing. He ordered the dishonorable discharges of 167 soldiers of the 25th Infantry for their, quote, conspiracy of silence, unquote. Fourteen of these men were later reinstated to the Army, but the other 153 were barred from ever serving again in the military or being employed in any civil service jobs. They lost their pensions, despite the fact that many had served for more than 20 years. Famed African-American educator Booker T. Washington appealed to Roosevelt to reconsider, but to no avail. Major Charles Penrose, the white officer in command of the Buffalo Soldiers, who had insisted that his men were innocent, was subjected to a court-martial for neglect of duty. Captain McDonald of the Texas Rangers accused him at the procedure of trying to interfere with the investigation. Penrose was eventually acquitted, but the cloud of the Brownsville incident hung over the remainder of his military career. More than half a century later in the 1970s, a history of this incident and its aftermath was published, spurring enough interest that the Pentagon opened an investigation, one which soon exonerated all of the discharged soldiers. Two years later, their records were corrected and their discharges changed to honorable. In addition, they all received a presidential pardon from Richard Nixon. No compensation was provided for them or their descendants, with one exception the single soldier of the 25th who was still alive, Dorsey Willis. For him, Congress passed an act which awarded him a tax-free pension. Well, with that out of the way, let's get to a happier and little-known chapter in the history of the Buffalo Soldiers. It took place at the West Point Military Academy. Now, there had always been a unit of cavalrymen at West Point whose job was to train the cadets in military horsemanship. Now, this unit had grown notorious for poor morale and low enlistment until in 1907 when black troopers from the 9th and 10th Cavalries were given the job. From their perspective, this was a great job. Instead of some remote frontier post or south of the Mason-Dixon line where they weren't welcome, and they knew horses and combat inside out. While they were also given a number of other more menial tasks around the academy, they were used to that. After all, it had been the default setting in every other assignment in their history. Buffalo soldiers continued to train U.S. Army cadets in cavalry discipline and tactics for four decades, until the Army was desegregated in 1947 and the Buffalo soldier units were disbanded as a result. There is a sculpture of a Buffalo soldier on horseback at West Point, memorializing their service. In 1981, a young brigadier general in the U.S. Army named Colin Powell, who of course would eventually become the first African-American Secretary of State, was getting some exercise by running around his new post, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Now, for those of you who don't know who Colin Powell was, get off social media and read a book for crying out loud. 
The very first Buffalo Soldiers, the 10th Cavalry, had formed in 1867, and some or all of them had been stationed at Fort Leavenworth throughout the illustrious history of the unit. Yet the only traces of their existence that General Powell saw during his run were names on an alley and a gravestone. He vowed that day that if he ever gained the power, he would rectify the sorry state of memorialization of the service of the many brave men who had suffered indignity and violence in their own country while trying their best to serve and protect it here and overseas. Well, as most of you know, Colin Powell would go on to become a four-star general, giving him all the power he needed. On July 25, 1992, 500 surviving Buffalo soldiers and thousands of spectators were on hand at Fort Leavenworth to see General Powell and Senator Bob Dole dedicate the Buffalo Soldiers Monument. Now, I've heard of the Buffalo Soldiers since I was a young boy, and I was always fascinated by them. I loved the classic song Buffalo Soldiers by Bob Marley. But I had no idea of many of the best parts of their story until I began to research for this audio history. The repeated accounts of their valor in combat and profound dignity while being serially shit on by the army brass and the huge majority of the American public were nothing short of inspirational to me. I couldn't write fiction that good if I tried, and I'm gratified to have told you about it. Next time, the story returns to the Philippines. The Philippine-American War had followed right on the heels of the Spanish-American War. And now, yet another war followed on the heels of the Philippine-American War, and it took place in the Philippines. It was called the Pulahan War, and the Philippine Constabulary was right in the thick of it. And I'll tell you about it next time. Anyway, that's what I think. But I could be wrong. Let me know what you think, and check out old episodes of the Martial Brain Podcast at my website rpmartialarts.com I'm Jeff Westfall for the Martial Brain. The Martial Brain is produced by Raging Squirrel Productions in association with the Rising Phoenix Martial Arts Academy. If you like the podcast and would like to help it grow, go to iTunes or Stitcher and give it an honest rating and review. Contact me with questions about the Marshall Brain or about the Rising Phoenix Academy at my website, rpmartialarts.com. <laughs>